Good morning, everyone. It is a wonderful privilege to be here with you this morning. I truly mean that. It's been a number of months that Phil, myself, and Anna have been speaking for uh, about this potential move. And along the way, there has been always the discussion of, well, Joe, when are you going to come and preach? And uh, that's been my heart, and it's been a while. There's been some dates that were potentially set, and they just didn't work out. But it's great and an absolute privilege to be able to bring to you the Word of God. And so if you have your Bibles with you, will you please open them up uh, to Jonah, the book of Jonah. We're going to be starting there, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And as I say, uh, we're going to be looking at Jonah. I'm sure for some of you that might come at a bit of a surprise. I think uh, the book of Jonah and the story of Jonah is something that we are familiar with as, as Christians, those of us who have grown up in the church and uh, in many ways, when we associate the story of Jonah, we think of Sunday school. And uh, I think in some ways we have uh, relegated this wonderful book that has an incredible amount of meaning and tons of story and tons of lessons to be learned all the way down to just something we tell kids because it captivates their attention and gets the imagination flowing. But what are we going to realize as we dive into the book of Jonah is that Jonah has incredible things for us to learn. Jonah is going to challenge us on how God views the world, how he views people outside of this body, and it's going to challenge us as well to, are we going to love them and treat them and serve them as much as Christ has loved and served us? But the major theme of Jonah is not necessarily how we would view others, but the major theme of Jonah is how we would view God. We're going to see Jonah has a picture of who God is. He thinks God is one way, and in many ways he wants to take Jonah, and he wants to mold him into his own image. But what we will soon learn is God is his own man. He, does not, he is not molded by us, but instead he will mold us himself, and we will be changed more into his image, not the other way around. So keep that in mind as we dive into this book. We're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Uh, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It goes as follows. And if you have forgotten your Bibles, it should be on the screen behind me. I hope you can read that. It says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But the, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And we will stop there. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we long to hear from you. Lord, we gather here because we want to hear from the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I pray that you would open up our hearts so that our hearts might be receptive to what you have to say to us. And Lord, I ask that you would take my words and use them for your glory, but anything that's of me and not of you, may they fall on deaf ears. And may your words stir us up for faith, that we might live as a church more boldly for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text starts off this morning now. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and this was a real normal way that a prophetic book would open up. Uh, it would indicate that a prophet was going to speak the words of God. He was going to give a message. And it would be particularly to the people of Israel, and uh, it would be normally in a time of crisis that God would come and he would speak to them. But Jonah is vastly different, and it's shocking for three different reasons. It's shocking, one, because this is the very first time that God is asking a, a prophet to go out of Israel to another nation. 
Never before has a prophet been asked to go to a pagan nation and proclaim the words of God. He was asked, like Isaiah, Amos, Jeremiah, they gave oracles to other nations, but they always were able to sit comfy in their own homes and be able to say those there rather than having to go to the nations. But not only that, it is also shocking because of the nation God sends them to. He's sending Jonah to the Ninevites, Assyria. Assyria is a bloodthirsty nation. It is a nation that was vile and cruel, hated the Lord, hated the people of God, and worshipped their own gods. And I thought of potentially giving you some of the things that they've did, but I will spare you that this morning. But it was a nation that took glee and delight in making others suffer. But not only were they a really pagan, bad nation, but they were also one of the enemies of the northern kingdom of Israel. They were putting pressure on Israel to submit to them and, and charge them money so that they wouldn't attack them. And so it makes very little sense why God would want to send a prophet to show them mercy. And another reason why this is shocking is because he chooses Jonah to go and do it. Now, we just see in our text this morning, it says Jonah, the son of Amittai, and it doesn't give any more description of who he is. And the expectation for at least the ancient reader who was initially written to is that they would know who he was. And we see him briefly mentioned in one other place in Scripture, in 2 Kings chapter 14, 25, we see that Jonah is mentioned. And in the context, what we learn is that Jonah was a a advocate for the king at the time. The king at the time was Jeroboam II. He was an awful king. He didn't serve the Lord. He served other gods and he was vile. And other prophets like Amos and Hosea would come along and they would preach against him, saying, you need to change. They would preach against the unfaithfulness and the unrighteousness and the injustices that were happening. But we see Jonah wasn't like that. At that time, Jonah, who ministered during that time, was a big advocate for Jeroboam II because he was a person who was great at his military exploits and made Jerusalem more strong and more powerful and would extend their borders. And so at the heart of Jonah is a a very patriotic partisan nationalist. He loved his nation and he absolutely hated other nations. And so it would seem shocking that God would not only send a prophet to another nation, a pagan nation who was the enemy of Israel, but he would choose a man who did not like them at all or did not have the heart for it. And so I want you to keep that in mind because that is going to be a theme and the heart of Jonah is going to be exposed throughout the whole book. And so what we see happens is that Jonah runs from God. Jonah is a mistrusting prophets. He runs from the Lord. We see this in verse 3. It says, but Jonah rose to Tarshish to free from the presence of the Lord. And what happens here is Jonah's biggest problem is not so much the mission that God has given him, but Jonah's biggest problem is the one who's given the mission. Jonah is upset with God. As he takes into account Assyria and who they are, his own personality, he cannot fathom how God could mean this for any good. Jonah questions and mistrusts God's justice, 
He mistrusts God's goodness and he mistrusts God's wisdom. At the, the core root of Jonah's disobedience is that he does not trust God, that God has his best interests at heart and he has the people of Israel's best interests at heart. Now, before we get upset with Jonah or think that Jonah is foolish, it doesn't take, a quick, uh, it doesn't take long to have a quick look over our lives to realize that there have been many occasions in our lives when we've looked at God and said, we don't understand what you're doing here. We don't, Lord, we don't necessarily know whether you have our best interests at heart. How could you be allowing this to happen? It's, the, it's sitting in the doctor's office and getting the report from those tests, and it's not what you wanted. Lord, how, how could you possibly mean this for good? It is having that job that you were hoping for, and then suddenly the last lead dries up, and you find yourself still unemployed and questioning God whether or no you know what is best. Do you really have my best interest at all? Are you truly my provider? It is, it is that relationship, that romantic relationship that you thought was never possible. Suddenly, it crashes and it burns, and you sit there questioning whether or not God has your best interests at heart whatsoever. And, if, and in certain difficult situations, whatever it might be for you, what we find is that we doubt in those moments, in trials and, and difficulties, whether or not God is truly good to us. That is the root of Jonah's disobedience, but that same root sits so deeply within us as well. And not only that, if we consider the commands of God, that God tells us we must do things and we mustn't do other things, that sometimes those commands are contrary to what we feel, isn't it? Our passions, our desires within us say, no, this is right, but God's word says it's wrong. And in that moment, what happens is we weigh up the decision. Do I know what's best for me or does God? Is God truly good that he would restrict me from being able to do this thing that I so deeply want? And so we find here that ingrained in every single human is the doubt of God's goodness. And this comes from the fall. In Genesis chapter 2, God comes to Adam and Eve and he says to them, you may eat of every tree in this garden, but you may not eat of this one tree. And he does not tell them why he may not eat of them, why they may not eat of that tree. He just tells them that it would lead to death. That's the consequence, but he doesn't give them the reasons why. He doesn't give them his, his reasons behind it, but all he does is he says, don't eat of the tree. He appeals to relationship. He says, trust me. Trust me that I am good. Trust me that you know me. We walk together in the garden. You know who I am. Trust me on this one. I know what's best for you. Yes, you don't know the reasons, but just trust me. It's the same conversation I sometimes have with my boys as we're talking about things. And they go, Dad, but I said, boy, I can't explain it to you, but you just need to trust me. Does Dad want to hurt you? Does Dad ever do stuff intentionally to make you feel bad on purpose? No. Okay, well, then just trust me. And in a very similar way, God says that to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He says, just trust me. He appeals to relationship. And so what does Satan do? Satan slithers in and he goes and he attacks that very relationship. He comes in and he says, no, God said you couldn't eat of any of these trees. Which was a lie, he didn't. He causes doubt within their hearts. And in chapter 3, verse 5, he comes along and he says to them, if you would partake and eat of that tree, you will have freedom. You will have life. God is restricting you from enjoying all that you could possibly enjoy. And you will enjoy this incredible freedom in life, which it didn't. 
and they believe the serpent's lie and they sin. They believe the lie that God is restrictive, that he's selfish and he's self-absorbed. And ever since then, in every single one of our hearts, what has crept in is a doubt that God is good, that he is good toward us and he's not. And this plays itself out in two different ways. In, one ways, in two different ways, we see that we can run away from God like Jonah did. And the, the first way is that of rebellion, or if you want the technical term, it's antinomianism, it's anti-law, it's, it's looking at God's laws and not believing and doing them. We see this with Jonah in our text this morning. God gives a command, go to Nineveh, and he does the complete opposite. He, he rebels. He goes, Lord, I cannot believe in your goodness. And, and in the same way, we do a similar thing. God gives us his commands and he gives them out for us on how to live. And we look at those laws and those commands and say, Lord, you have given them because you want to be restrictive. Because you don't want us to enjoy stuff. And so in many ways, what we do is we cast off those commands so that we might be able to live the life that we think is best for ourselves and not what God wants for us. We go, this is where life is found. God, you are wrong. I'm going to do what I want. And we, we play down and, and say those commands aren't there for us because God isn't good. We doubt his goodness. Consider this morning the, the sin of premarital sex. God says clearly that sex happens between, in a heterosexual marriage. And that's where it's beautifully meant to be enjoyed. But when we are dating that partner and things seem to be right, what do we do? We go, oh no, we love each other. This feels so right for us. Don't worry, we're going to marry each other anyway. And, and so what do we do in those sentences? Those might be good laws for other people, but for us it's not the case. And we go and we say, for us this is better. God doesn't mean this for us. It's not good for us. And we doubt the goodness of God. Or maybe let's take a sin that's maybe more applicable to all of us today, and, and that is the sin of gossip and slander. God clearly says, do not gossip, do not slander, clear as day. He says, rather use your words to glorify God and build one another up and encourage. That's what we should do. But in those moments, what happens? When that, that conversation starts to happen, I don't know, I'm going to be sharing a bit of my own heart here. That conversation starts to happen, and you know you've got something super juicy. And, and that person, you know, if you share it, they're going to love every single bit of what you share. And it just feels so right to share it, doesn't it? My grandmother used to say, it's not sin, it's just sharing, and sharing is caring. <laughs> and we downplay it. We downplay this, and instead, in those moments, though so small, we go, God, you, oh, this is just a small sin. It's not really good for me. It doesn't really matter. And we downplay the goodness of God in giving us that instruction. It is ultimately at the core what we do is we downplay the goodness of God. But here's the problem. The problem with this rebellion is that it never leads to the life that you and I hope it will lead to. It never leads to the joy that we are longing for, that our hearts are created to have. Because what we are trying to do is we are trying to find satisfaction in something that only God can give, friends. We are hoping that that relationship or that experience or, or that thing that we desperately want, that that somehow will be able to give us lasting joy, but it never does, does it? Just look at your own experiences. You know that the joy that comes from other things never lasts. You have to go out with your mates, but the next day, and you need to go out again because the joy doesn't last. 
The pleasures of sin never satisfy. People will fail us. They can never give us what we ultimately want because joy is not found in experiences. Joy is not found in sin. Joy is ultimately found in God and God alone, in the infinite being of Jesus Christ who longs and will ultimately satisfy us. This is what Jesus says famously in John 10, verse 10. He says, the thief comes to steal and destroy, but I have come to give life and life abundantly. The lie that, Jesus, the lie that God is not good is part of the thief's uh, strategy in order to steal, kill, and destroy us. It is part of the strategy to rob us of what ultimately God wants. But Jesus says, no, it is ultimately found in me. Life is found in me. Fullness of life is found in me as well. Do you notice that he says, I've come to give life, and it's abundantly. He didn't just say, I've come to give life. And that's so important for us as Christians to realize that the life that Christ gives is salvation. But if we have to continue to run to him and glean from him in order to have a fullness of life, does that make sense? I see one or two heads nodding. That's good. But you cannot find the fullness of life in anything else other than that of Jesus. You have to run to him. The second way in which it leads, this lack of trust in God's goodness, we run away from God in rebellion, but we also run in the opposite direction in that of legalism. And in chapters 3 and 4, we will see that Jonah has a sudden change in action. He gets swallowed up by the great fish. He gets spat out on the land, and God says, go to Nineveh, and this time he listens. But the difference is this time, Jonah, while his actions are there, his heart is still the same. We'll see he gets very, very upset by the fact that God would come and God would save the Ninevites. He is very, very angry at that. And that is ultimately what legalism is. It's a a change of action, but not necessarily a change of heart. And we see this with the Pharisees. Jesus will call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Why? Because they're nice and clean on the outside, but they're rotten to the core on the inside. And legalism is a lack of trust of God's goodness because it believes that God isn't good and God doesn't want to bless me. God doesn't want to give me himself. And what I have to do to, in order to pry open his uh, uh, fists that are clenched so tightly is I have to do good things so that I might get a little bit of goodness. God doesn't want to freely give himself to me. So I need to get it from him through doing good works and good actions. And so we believe that it's only through our good works that God might be good to us. But what legalism fails to remember, friends, is that um, is one of the fundamentals of the gospel, and that is that we are rotten to a core. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful beyond all cure. Who can understand it? It is deceitful and, and wrong. That there is no ways we can make our hearts better. Again, in our Isaiah uh, uh, 64 verse 6 says, And we, uh, we have all become like leaf, uh, sorry, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We can stop there. Are like polluted garments. That the best of the best that we can do before God is actually like a polluted garment before a holy God. It's not good enough. And so there's no ways that we'll be able to pry open his hands of God because the the central truth of the gospel is that we aren't good enough, but God freely gives himself to us. He freely gives himself to us. 
And so the problem with, with legalism is that it leads to death and destruction for those who would partake of it. For the average person like ourselves, what will happen is that it will be too hard to bear and will crush you. You cannot live up to the expectations of legalism. It will be a burden too heavy to carry and it will lead to spiritual despair. But for the spiritual elite, those who are able to somehow make themselves all better like the Pharisees did, all it does is it changes your outward actions, doesn't change your heart. And it leaves you in a place of a heart that is cold and a heart that is distant from God. And so we have these two major problems or two major outworkings of this major problem of not trusting God's goodness, and that is rebellion on the one end, or the opposite of that is that we try to earn his favor, which we can't. So what is the solution to this problem? And the solution is this. It is that of faith, my friends. It is trusting in who God is. It's the, it's the solution of faith. It is the kind of, uh, what, it, what should Jonah have gone and done? Well, he should have gone and he should have trusted in God. Lord, I have no idea why you want me to go and tell these things to the, these people. It makes zero sense to me, but I know who you are, and so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you are good. This makes no sense to my wisdom, but you are, you are all wise, and so therefore I will trust in your wisdom. I know, Lord, that you are just, so I know you will not do something that is not right, so I'm going to trust you in going to the Ninevites. It is about a faith in who God is. You see, friends, faith is not a trusting that is far outside of the person of God. Faith is not a uh, a wishing upon a star. It is not hopeful thinking. It's, it's not uh, wishing for the best. That is not what faith is. Faith is, in, in faith is believing in who God is, believing in who he is. East Coast, your, the biggest deficiency of our faith is not that we have a poor expectation of what God can do, but a poor understanding of who he is. Our faith is most stable when it is centered on who God is. Let me say that again. The biggest deficiency of our faith is not that we have a poor expectation of what God can do, but rather we have a poor understanding of who he is. Our faith is most stable, it is most strong, it is most secure, it is able to wither the storms of life best when it is centered on who God is. Have a poor expectation of who God is, your faith will be weak. Have a strong understanding of who he is, your faith will be strong. Because your faith is not dependent on nothingness, it is dependent on his character. And that is where we find our strength. So what do we need to do? We need to understand who God is. We need to grow in him. We need to know him and love him and enjoy him. And how you're going to do that is by spending regular time in this words. Gleaning from it, hearing how he has revealed himself to you. That you might enjoy him and know him. And again, I want, to, I want to emphasize it's not a knowledge in our, in our heads, but it's a knowledge that's seeped down in our hearts through relationship, through enjoying him and delighting in him regularly. So I have got some things in our, in our sermon, in our, in our text this morning that we get to see, some of the characters of God that we can hang our faith upon. And the very first character of God that we get to see here is that he is merciful. 
Look at Jonah 1 verse 2. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. This is a pagan nation who has not even had the words of God on their lips. They are bloodthirsty. They are cruel. They are awful. And yet God's heart toward them is to save them. He is merciful. So merciful that we cannot understand how he would love other people so different and so sinful. But the heart of God is such that he would be mercy to even them. And Jonah knows this. This is part of the reason why he flees. He says this in in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. We'll see it later on in the series. But after the Ninevites come and they repent before God, he says this. Oh Lord, is is not this what I said when I was in my own country? That this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Lord, you are merciful. That's why I didn't want to go. Because your heart is so merciful. I knew you were going to save them. And I didn't want you to. God's mercy to those who are vastly sinful and, and vastly out of his will is mercy to them so that they might be saved. But friends, I want to point out, if God would be merciful to such a nation like Nineveh, would he not be more merciful to us who are his children? Would he not give us the same kind of mercy and grace that God's natural posture toward us is that he would open up his heart so that we might receive mercy from him? We see this in in, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. And the God of comfort. Now don't hear me wrong. That does not mean that God is not just. And that God is not righteous. And that God uh, doesn't do what he meant. No, no. He is just and he is righteous. Unswervingly and unendingly so. And without that kind of truth, we wouldn't have no hope that all the wrongs that have been done to us would be righted by God. But what naturally flows out of his heart, what is his natural disposition to us, is that of mercy is that of mercy. This is the picture of the prodigal son who has run from his father, disappeared, squandered his inheritance, did all the horrible things that he's done, but yet the whole time the father is looking out on the porch, looking down the road, is my son coming home today? Looking for him, longing for him to return. And when he sees in the distance a figure that resembles his son, he starts to run runs toward him, embraces him, kisses him, kisses him with all his dirt and his ugliness, clothes him, puts a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, throws a party because he has returned. This is the picture of God's heart to you, my friends. That even in your ugliness, that his natural position towards you is not stinginess, is not restrictiveness, is not get away from me, but it's an open heart that moves towards you as you move toward him. Isn't that beautiful? That we have a good God who is so merciful. No matter what sin you have done, His mercy outweighs it. No matter how far you have run, He will go after you. He goes after Jonah. A man who should have known better, but He goes after him and shows him mercy over and over again. God's heart towards you, what flows from the depth of His heart, is mercy to you. Now that stirs up faith. It stirs a faith to be able to trust him in times when things are going difficult and things are hard and we don't understand the season we're in. It stirs a faith because we know he is merciful to me. He is good. It stirs a faith when sin arises and, 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 I, and I feel dirty and ashamed. I, I can come before him, not in my good works, 
Not in my good actions, but I come because he is merciful. And that has been demonstrated for me on the cross. And he loves me. And I come under his mercy for me. Are you running away? His mercy is grand. Is your sin cold? His mercy is to make it warm. Is it hard? Is your heart hard? He can make it tender. Are you sick? He has mercy to heal. He has mercy to overcome the situation you're in because he's a merciful father who loves you, who loves you. The second thing that we we see in here is that God is all-knowing. Jonah 1 verse 2 says, For the evil has come up before me, that even the Ninevites who weren't part of God's people, God was able to see every action that they have done. Friends, God knows everything about everything. There is nothing he does not know. He knows all the stars in the, in the universe and he has named them all. There's no crevice or crack or little nook or cranny on a planet we have not yet discovered that he does not know about. He knows the sparrows when they fly. He knows the flowers when they bud. He knows the fish when they swim and when they get caught to get eaten. He knows absolutely everything about everything. He knows the past in all its details. He knows that how many times you have tapped your foot. He knows how many times you have slammed your finger in the door and how sore it was. He knows everything about the future from the big to the small, what will happen to Russia and Ukraine to what you will eat for breakfast next week Wednesday. He knows it all. There is nothing that is hidden from him. But not in just a general sense, but in a personal way as well. Psalm 139 tells us that God knows the thoughts before we think them. He knows you so well, he knows the words on your mouth before you speak them. He knows when you rise and you're going to do an action. He knows when you sit down and do nothing and be lazy. He knows the attitudes of your hearts and is able to distinguish between the right and the wrong that you aren't even able to distinguish your motives behind your actions. He knows it all. He knows everything about you. And initially when we hear that, what that does is like the psalmist, it causes us to flee. We want to run away. David says, where can I run from your presence? He, he wants to get away because God is so exposed. And, and we feel exposed before someone like that because the ideal image that we have put on that others see suddenly is exposed before God and he knows even the ugliness of our hearts. But friends, this stirs up faith when we see this through the light of the gospel. Then when we realize that God has seen every bit of muck and ugliness of our soul, but yet would choose to come and die for us that he would see all that is wrong with you and yet not be like Jonah, repelled by their ugliness and flee away in the opposite direction. No, God's heart is such when he sees your ugliness, he had run to us. He would leave the glories of heaven, come to earth and live amongst us. And in doing so, not just fearing his death, but knowing certainly that death would happen, but he would do so in order to save us. And so this stirs up faith, knowing that even in my ugliness, God loves me. He's not just loving the image that you are portraying to others. It stirs up faith to know that his eye is always on me, and he understands the situation that I find myself in. That he understands the anxieties and the worries that I feel. He, he gets it all. He, he knows what it feels like. That he, is, he, and he also knows my future and what it will hold when the season will end and when a new season will come. This is what stirs up faith within our hearts, is getting to know who he is. The last thing that we will see, and this one will be, uh, I'll wrap up with this, is, is that he is all-powerful. 
Jonah 1 verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. Nineveh, the powerhouse of the world, the strong, mighty nation with a great army that conquered many, many lands. All of a sudden, God says to them, Nineveh, you repent or I'll wipe you out. You think you're strong, I'm stronger, Nineveh. You better bow before me as your king. He, he is the one who causes nations to rise and nations to fall. He is the one who allows seasons to change. He's, he's the one who holds the universe within his hands. He allows the stars to twinkle like they do and the planets to move like they do. He is over everything. There is no institution, no force, no demonic uh, uh, force. There is, no, there is no person who is able to withstand this glorious God. And this stirs faith within us because it helps us to realize that while my God is merciful and while he sees me in my plight, he also has the power to change things. That he is capable of being able to overcome everything that I am facing. And so it challenges my heart to trust in him, even when I do not know what is going on around me, because he is able to overcome. Regardless of what suffering you might go through, my friend, he is able to see you through it and overcome it. There is no mountain too big that he cannot move. There is no situation in which he cannot change, because he is powerful and able. Do you believe that this morning? Because if you do, it solidifies and puts in your heart faith that he is good, that he is what you need. And it changes our perspective to be able to trust him in such an extent that we can say, Lord, I do not know what's going on, but I trust you. You do. I will do what you call me to do. I will live for you because you are good. You are merciful and you can overcome anything. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that as we get to look at this, we get to realize that you are good to us. And we want to say sorry, Lord, for the many times that we have doubted your goodness. We have doubted you. We have doubted your good plan for us. We have doubted whether or not you have uh, this under control. But we want to be reminded this morning by your word that you are good. And I pray for us as a church that we would be a people who are merciful as you have been merciful to us. And that we would grasp with a magnitude, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, the truth that your natural posture towards us is mercy. And that we can come to you in our ugliness because you already see it all. And that you are able to wash us clean and wash it away. And that, Lord, we would be certain and convinced that you are powerful. And that we would bring, with, our, with humility, bring all that we have to you, lay it at your feet and ask that you change us. We ask that you move in Jesus' name. Amen.